0: You're listening to a podcast from Bloggingheads TV.
1: Hello,
0: Bloggingheads Heads Nation. Um, it only seems like it's been a long time since we last taped because every day is an eternity in our new political reality. But I'm Heather Hurlburt from New America and New York Magazine.
1: And I'm Daniel Dresner. I'm from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy as well as the Washington Post.
0: And Dan, I think before, I mean, we need to start off with the really important question, which is on the on the international intrigue of the moment, which is to say, who the hell tried to kill Big Poppy for eight thousand dollars in the Dominican Republic? Can you give us any
1: updates on that story? I this is I, you know this story is bananas, and you know I'm looking at the city of New York, frankly. But like, you know what? That's that's not. I'm not even. That's actually mean to New York, because like I, I would assume big Poppy is to New Yorkers in much the same way that let's say Mariano Rivera would be for Bostonians, which is we did not root for him, obviously, we didn't want him to succeed, but it was really hard to dislike him,
0: and I feel that New Yorkers, if they were going to off big Poppy wouldn't try to do it with a measly eight thousand bucks, yes,
1: yes, exactly, they wouldn't do it on the cheap, so you you this none of this makes any sense, and I fear that. The there will be more layers to this story. I would assume there has to be. I mean,
0: I fear that, too. And I really don't want to know what they are, Um, which is maybe as good a segue as any to the news of the day where there are more layers. I know there are more layers. I sort of know what they are. And I really don't want to know what they are, which is that um, oil tankers are burning in the Persian Gulf today.
1: That is correct, um, which would certainly seem to represent a significant escalation of uh, tensions between Iran and the United States, although – and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong because, I mean, I've, I've seen reports of the attacks. Has there been any uh, claim of who is responsible yet?
0: I have not seen a claim – how can I put this? Um, I have not seen a carefully sourced claim with facts attached. I have seen a rush to judgment. <laughs> you- <laughs>
1: Carefully sourced facts attached to it. This isn't 2014 anymore, Heather. Okay, you know we we, we got to adapt to the new the, the new world. But yes, go ahead. Sorry.
0: Well, I want to make a related point, which is that this will be the second incident of mysterious bad things happening to oil tankers in the Gulf in, in recent weeks. Um, and when the previous one happened, there were some pretty wide-ranging statements of responsibility by both. Um, administration figures and some of our Gulf allies. Um, And um, they were then followed up with the announcement that John Bolton was going to go to the UN and present evidence. And unless I missed it, which God knows is possible because there are so many exciting things that happen every day um, that didn't actually happen. So I have to say as as somebody who, you know, these have been pretty sophisticated operations. The first set um, appeared to have involved Someone swimming underwater and placing explosive devices on the bottoms of, of tankers, which is not, you know, something you just have a couple beers and feel angry at the world and decide to go out and do. Um, so someone with some fairly sophisticated abilities is doing this. Yes. Um, and and as I've as I've written in the future, when the United States makes a claim, it's important for people to, that, that people take it seriously as I want future administrations of, of the United States to have credibility as one of the tools they can use in international affairs. And I'm
1: concerned about something of a decline in that area. That's a valid thing to be concerned about. Um, and I should add that even if we have no credible, uh, you know, we, we have no, you know, credible sourcing or, or hard facts on this. Um, it, it does stand to reason to some extent that Iran would potentially have a motivation to engage in this kind of action because, as they've been stating for the last few months or so, uh, they don't like the box they've been put in by uh, the U.S. withdrawal from the JCPOA, the ratcheting up of economic sanctions that have been placed uh, on the uh, the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps, the zeroing out of, of exemptions with respect to um, – uh, oil exports, um, which does not mean to say that it is them, but it would it, there. There's been intimations for a while that Iran is thinking of alternative ways to pressure uh, the U.S. and its coalition, and this would seem to be a natural extension of that. Yes,
0: and I think it's also reasonable to to note that um, the Iranian government's not a unitary actor, and it's been clear, I mean, since Obama, that you had forces that wanted to push confrontation with the U.S. and forces that wanted to
1: avoid confrontation with the U.S. Right. This. I think I think it was Alan Goldenberg who pointed out that it, it, if nothing else, the timing of this is extremely odd because I believe Shinzo Abe is in Tehran right now, yes. and with the idea that he was supposed to act as the sort of interlocutor between the Trump administration and Iran, um, if even if you were an Iranian, uh, this doesn't seem like something, let's say, that Rouhani would want done, but maybe it might be something that a much more hard you know a hardliner would want to potentially do.
0: Yeah. And we should the The Shinzo Abe thing is is really striking, um, even without the burning tankers in the Gulf, because Abe, of course, is also one of Trump's best friends internationally and is just off this very successful Trump visit,
1: which of course is not the word I would use. I would say uh, loyal supplicants. But go ahead.
0: Um. So, you know, Abe, I mean, this is an interesting wider conversation, right? Because Abe has chosen a very explicitly, as you say, uh, supplicant approach. And right. to a certain extent, it's paid off for him. There's nowhere near the anger directed at Japanese auto um, imports, for example, that there is at the Germans. Um, the, you know, the the ally spending is arguably... You can make a case that it's just as bad with Japan in, in different ways as with Germans, but but Abe has not been the target of, of public ridicule um, in the way that that um, Merkel and and the Germans have. Although certainly some of his major security goals have been massively undermined by the conduct of this administration, so what? I don't wanna I don't wanna suggest that he's getting anything good out of it. But you know something that it underlines is. Um, there are many in the Trump administration and, frankly, the, their Gulf, um, Saudi and, and Gulf allies who have an absolute visceral core ideological objection to Iran as a power and the current Iranian regime. Trump is not one of those people. If Abe could get um, as an Iranian to sort of fly on a plane and call and say, hey, next stop, Washington, Donald, you want to have a summit? Trump would be
1: thrilled. That is probably true, although this raises one of those interesting questions of you are correct about Trump's ideological predilections about this. But as you would note, um, I think it would be safe to say that, let's say, folks like John Bolton and Mike Pompeo uh, do have a visceral um, objection to Iran's role in the region. And so, you know, God knows they they to some extent followed Trump's bidding with respect to North Korea. You would not have expected them to do that if Trump were to take the negotiation by the horns and and go – you know, uh, suggesting he would sit down with uh, the Ayatollah uh, on Tehran, they would probably obey that. My concern is, is that I don't think he's going to be as engaged on Iran. He just never he's never seemed as engaged on Iran as he has been on North Korea.
0: Yeah, I think um, there's, a I mean, and there, there's a shrewd, I think, political calculation there that there there's no. The Repu- or the the Republican Party faction that's deeply internally invested in conflict with North Korea is smaller and less central than the Republican Party faction that's deeply invested in conflict with Iran. And right. so if, if you were gonna sit down and say, you know I'm going to put a pin in the map and I'm gonna pick a place where I can do a crazy deal with a with a really vicious dictator, um, and have to give up the least within my own coalition to do that, you'd, you'd pick North Korea over.
1: Right. over um, no, uh, I think that's uh, that's a safe statement. But I think, my, you know, my concern is um, absent. So this, this gives rise to an interesting question in terms of the dynamic, because, you know, I, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was about a month or two ago that, you know, there was a lot of chatter in washington about is trump going to escalate you know the, the the rhetoric coming out on iran was extremely bellicose um you know there was a lot of talk that that you know carrier groups were removed into the region that you know more forces are going to be sent there this was a prelude to war many people were even comparing it to the 2002 run-up to the iraq war which i did think was overblown but nonetheless and you know trump pretty much squashed that. I mean, there were there was a series of stories that came out saying that Trump was actually the one acting as a break on Bolton. And, you know, he made it clear this was not he he did not want uh, to launch war. And even, you know, Mike Pompeo said, we're ready to sit down and discuss, you know, talk with the Iranians and so on and so forth. How do you see this one playing out now?
0: Well, what I've watched this morning is that there's the sort of let's cool it, let's cool it rhetoric has been almost simultaneous with the event. You know, the tankers are still burning. Um, the crews are still in the process of being rescued and there's already people saying, let's cool it, let's cool it. So I think there were some lessons learned or some, um, some attempts to put off ramps in place from the previous conversation. I'd also note it's interesting that last night, um, the house was up, um, up all night not to get lucky, but to debate defense spending and defense policy for next year. And there was um, an attempt to put in some language forbidding the administration to take um, um, offensive action against Iran. And interestingly, they got wound around some kind of technical, how do you do that? But there was a promise from Adam Smith, who's the head of the House Armed Services Committee, that there will be language to that effect in the final bill. Huh. And what's really interesting is that you had um, some of the people championing it were everybody from Ro Khanna, who's one of the more who's from the Progressive Caucus, yeah. to Elisa Slotkin, um, Michigan, former DOD senior official, not somebody that you think of as a leftist or an alarmist and someone who knows the Pentagon extremely well. Right. So I think there's... um. The level of concern that 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 everybody saw publicly a month ago is still very much there, and people, you know, whether it's the Pentagon trying to tamp things down or Congress, people sort of are are at their battle stations.
1: Although, I mean, this is where you know, since since we've talked, I've I've written what I call my season of doom essay series, and and in some ways, I'm working on another one right now, which we'll add to that. But but the depressing fact about this is. As much as you might want to constrain the Trump administration's sort of active measures, what my concern is, is that essentially what they've already done sets up a scenario where there there is going to be an escalation. Because essentially, you know, the sort of maximum pressure campaign applied against Iran for a while, I think there was a lot of talk about how the Iranian position on this is fine. We'll just wait you out. We can wait until 2020 or 2021 and, you know. Maybe we think we, the mullahs, are going to be around longer than you, Trump, will be. But it does seem clear. And I think here you have to give the Trump administration credit in terms of it's been able to impose much more severe costs on the Iranian regime than I think a lot of skeptics would have believed even a year ago. Um, to the point, But in some ways now you can argue that this – in some ways the pressure has been so successful that they've backed the Iranian regime into a corner. Where they don't feel like they have any other option but, in fact, to escalate uh, and to strike against the, you know, the United States and its allies, which means that we're not going to see attacks like this go away. If anything, they're going to escalate, and it seems it, it seems like it's going to be harder and harder. The, the, the president has done a lovely job of explaining away, you know, Kim Jong Un's short-term ballistic missile tests and saying, "No, it's fine. We've gotten these love letters and so on and so forth." Um, I seriously doubt he's going to be able to do the same thing with Iran, but. You know, you can persuade me if I'm wrong. But but if not, I don't see how this ends except in more hostility.
0: Well, what if um, the situation that you describe is, is sort of a new normal uh, where you have more provocations from Iran and Iranian allied state and non-state actors? And that's the new normal,
1: which also in some senses is the old normal. I mean, it is. Um, it's very really, it's very retro. This is all 19, like back to the nineteen eighties. Yes, yes. So
0: then, your best case scenario is that all actors can manage a world of heightened provocations. Um, of course, it particularly is terrible for the civilians who end up being the victims of the provocations, um, and that we get through some period without without heightened provocations and back and forth leading to a a conflagration, or we don't. Now, I think the other sort of bad consequence of this is that even if we live through and, and move into a a post Trump era where there were a different policy. Um, I think, and this is this is an unpopular view, but I think Trump has now driven us past the point where a new administration could say, oh, we're just gonna go re-sign the JCPOA and every we're gonna re-sign the Obama deal with Iran and everything is good. I don't see how you get through another um two years and and can credibly say um, there is still a deal in place that is full enough that we can re-sign it. And hey, you know, it's it's like the point where you find out that the last the whole last season was a bad dream. Um, I don't see how I don't see how you put the Iranian political system and the internal Iranian debate about restarting their nuclear program. I don't see how you put it back in back in the bottle. Right. So right. that means that you know, best you got to do a new negotiation. And yeah. given the incredible amount of resources, the Obama administration put into that negotiation to get what it got. Then you have it at a weakened administration, um, with a bunch of other priorities trying to get less with their critics emboldened. And so there, even if you don't have a confrontation in the next two years, the ground is ripe for longer term confrontation.
1: No. Um, This is a problem, which also, by the way, leads us to – it's a lovely segue to our uh, larger conversation that we wanted to have. Uh, I I would point out, by the way, that you you are not as alone, I think, in this perspective as as you would suggest. I think Josh Keating wrote a great piece in Slate uh, yesterday pointing out, in fact, that despite people like Pete Buttigieg claiming he would rejoin the JCPOA immediately, um, that, yeah, the the facts on the ground will have changed to the point where – it is not going to be easy to do or rather it's not going to have the effect that anyone would would view it anyway, because from the Iranian perspective, the negotiations with the Obama administration were draining enough and they didn't get that much from them, uh, you know, in the end. And so the idea that they'd be willing to do this all over again is is highly doubtful. But this gives rise to a larger question, which is, um, you know, let's be optimistic and say that Donald Trump will not get reelected. Um, You know, there will be a Democrat president come January 2021. Uh, Is it possible to put the genie back in the bottle and pretend like, as you say, like pretend like the last four years were a bad dream and that, you know, well, not obviously not doing that, but like basically trying to patch over what had been the prior status quo or not. And this gives rise to the fact that, that as you and I have noticed, there's been this big honking debate about, you know, the future of American grand strategy and that what is Trump is torn asunder and perhaps cannot be put back together again.
0: Yeah. I, so I have two answers to this. One, my personal answer, um, which is basically an endless string of cliches about you can't step in the same river twice, um, water flows under the bridge, etc., cetera, et cetera. Um, but also to note that this debate is is rending both the democratic foreign policy community and what's left of the never Trump, outside Trump other than Trump, Republican foreign policy community. Um,
1: this, Which is still sizable, to be fair, but yes.
0: Yes, uh, lonely but sizable, yeah. um, if I may uh, characterize. <laughs> but there is this really, really interesting. So first of all, on sort of how many, and in this debate, I would say has has two tiers. And one is how many institutions and structures can we just go back to? So this is everything from there's been I mean, a lot of presidential candidates were asked to say that they would rejoin the JCPOA. There's a wing of economic thought that still wants to say, oh, we should just go back and sign the, the TPP. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a sort of, oh, you know, how do we deal with four years of daily assaults on NATO? Oh, plus and plus plus the effects of Brexit. Oh, we just go back. And we just lead and, and it'll all be OK. Mm-hmm. So one question is sort of the health of the institutions that we would walk back into. And the other question is, is there room still? Is the whole left by withdrawal or change from the mode of, of U.S. leadership that was sort of expected, whatever you think of it, expected in the post-Cold War era? Is that space still available for um a president harris to walk back into or is that space gone not to be returned and um a uh, president booker would have to create a new space that wouldn't look that wouldn't look like like atlas bestriding the, the
1: cosmos right so i would say, so you know I, I i am also of two minds when it comes to this i think um you know as i argued in Foreign Affairs, you know, the title of that essay was This Time is Different, meaning that, um, you know, I am terribly pessimistic about a the prospects of a post-Trump foreign policy somehow, you know, reviving the sort of traditional role of of U.S. leadership in the world, um, mostly because that Trump was as much a symptom as he is a cause of the the current uh, problems we're experiencing, namely that essentially the 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 other institutions that that in theory were supposed to help shape American foreign policy, namely congress, uh, the foreign policy community writ large, even the American public, have by and large ceded authority to the president um, and that uh, for a variety of reasons uh, and 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 dysfunctions um, and the problem is, is that the combination of presidential power uh, congressional gridlock and the sort of growing partisanship when it comes to foreign policy, the degree to which foreign policy has become perceived much more as a domestic policy or domestic politics play thing than I think it used to be even a decade ago potentially means that, you know, you could have a President Warren completely reverse almost everything that a President Trump has uh, done and then President Cotton replace everything that President Warren has done, and then President Ocasio Cortez completely eviscerating everything that President Cotton has done to the point where if you're a ally or a partner or an international institution, you really are going to throw up your hands and think there's no point in dealing with the United States. The U.S. ability to credibly commit to anything has now been completely uh, uh, worn away. Um, so that is my 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 dominant take. But I will say this. That essay prompted some interesting feedback from unexpected quarters, uh, you know, of people who basically said, A, yeah, OK, you've identified a real problem. B, we who work for a particular democratic campaign or what have you want to avoid this problem when we come back in. We, we recognize this is a thing and we, we actually do want to restore American leadership. How can you prove yourself wrong? And so that was the, the inspiration of, of what I wrote for today for Spoiler Alerts. Um, a sort of few modest suggestions. Um, but even there, the, the problem becomes you have to pursue two purposes, and they're somewhat at loggerheads with each other. The first is you would need to reverse as much of the Trump. Executive actions as possible. You know, you'd want to rejoin the Paris Climate Change Accords, and I believe that would be one of the relatively easier things that could be done um, by a President Sanders or a President Buttigieg. Really, I'm just throwing out Democratic names at this point. I'm just, I'm, have, I'm really, I'm going to do that throughout this entire conversation. You know, second that you would want a um, a President Castro to give a uh, a significant speech, sort of articulating in particular. A doctrine about when financial sanctions will be imposed and when they won't be because um, in some ways that's the sort of significant source of American uh, power in the world and it's been implemented in such a way that I'm somewhat concerned about the degree to which allies as well as adversaries are trying to find ways to work around the US dollar. Um, a third, uh, suggestion I made was that a, a President Moulton, I'm really having too much fun with it, <laughs> a President de Blasio would, uh, would immediately, you know, would, would create a, a, as, parallel to a Council of Economic Advisors, a Council of Foreign Affairs Advisors, um, that would in some ways play a similar role of trying to bring academic research, uh, informed policymaking. And then finally, and this might be the mo, you know, the two more pie-in-the-sky things, but actually that I think would be useful, would be the first, the creation of a high-level commission uh, that would be bipartisan to try to figure out how to rework the sort of foreign policy machinery to adapt it to uh, a world of great power competition and a world of future challenges. And this this is ordinarily, let's face it, when people talk about the you know national commissions, these are always sort of conveniently seen as a way to to punt on a problem and that it won't really accomplish that much. Um, I actually think the last two decades... Put the lie to that. I think there have been some significant presidential commissions that have actually had agenda setting effects. But also, I think in this particular case, there is some genuine hope, I think, for bipartisanship because this, as you say, is something that Republicans as well as Democrats agree is a problem and would potentially actually lead to some constructive solutions. And then the final thing is potentially actually trying to get the American people involved. And that was actually, I thought, the, the, the most promising thing about uh, uh, candidate Buttig- Buttigieg's speech yesterday, uh, a couple of days ago, on foreign policy, talking about the, the sort of relationship of foreign policy to bread and butter issues uh, at the table, you know, at the kitchen table.
0: So I'm in the interesting position of agreeing with almost everything you've just said and thinking that you've really missed sort of a fundamental point. So I want to start by saying that I really endorse the, the set of measures that you set out in the article. I think are really good. The problem is those measures are all essential just for the U.S. to be a functional great power. Yeah. Um, we we th- Those measures, they're not negotiable. They're not discussable. We have to do them or their equivalents. But though even if we did all of those things, they wouldn't restore us to the position that we had say in of August, 2001. And the thing that I think your analysis, as well as, um, the, that of our friends on the campaign that I would hypothesize is the one that, that called you up and said, prove yourself wrong. Um, um, and astute viewers will know why I have hypothesized that as well. Um, is that um, just the, the, um, the practical circumstances outside our borders have changed, that, that yeah. Washington doesn't enjoy anywhere near the monopoly of economic power, doesn't enjoy the preponderance of security power. Uh, the, um, the diffusion of power both among states and outside state actors is a long-term trend. It's not reversible. Um, it's not reversible by anything that Washington does. And what it means is, is that the costs of maintaining the level of of leadership or hegemony that we had get higher and higher and higher and higher. And so then you pair that with the political dynamics that you're talking about. And so you have a task that is just more difficult on its face and a political system that's less up to the task. And I feel um, and when I did this, this piece for Lawfare, looking at more than a dozen recent pieces on, on national security strategy, there's a real um, surprise. So you have the people who say, oh, well, obviously the U.S. isn't the global hegemon and shouldn't be the global hegemon. And why don't you all just shut up about that? And then you have the people who say, well, we should try to regain our global leadership because it's really a good thing. And if we don't do it, who's going to? And what I'm still looking for is a kind of realistic, with a small r rather than a large r, assessment of relatively how much power does the US have? How much of it can we regain? How much will it cost to regain it? And then what the heck can we do with it? And this is where I come to your last point, because I actually think the people who are doing the best job of talking about how these issues connect to Americans' daily realities are some people who aren't running for president. Um, first and foremost, Stacey Abrams, actually, hmm. somewhat surprisingly. Um, and the that we really, um, the way to do the public communication around this piece is not to do a kind of around the world, here's my policy for Asia, here's my policy for Israel-Palestine, here's my policy for Latin America, but to start with, We have a problem with gun violence. We have a problem with democracy. How do, how are there roots and connections of those things that come from overseas? We have a thousand migrants a day from from Central America showing up at our borders. How is that happening? There are reasons that's happening. And there are, so there's a whole, to get to where you want to go, there's a whole different actually way of talking about how foreign and domestic merge. That's going to be required. And I don't think we've seen it emerge yet.
1: Okay. So let me, let me push back on a a few things. The first is on that last point, I would disagree. I think we have started seeing it. You can argue, you know, the, the connection.
0: I got him to be optimistic. I got him to be optimistic. (laughs)
1: Um, well, okay. Yeah. Uh, you know that that you could argue the core of Elizabeth Warren's argument that she's made, both in her foreign affairs piece and and more generally, has been the idea that we need to engage in a foreign policy that essentially is consistent with, you know, what Warren would say is her progressive progressive vision for the United States. I would also argue Bernie Sanders' stuff has probably also been you know similar in terms of talking about kleptocracy uh, as a potential threat to not just you know, security threat to the United States, but a threat to the, the character of, of the United States. Um, and I think Buttigieg, to some extent, did that as well in his speech uh, uh, two days ago. So you are starting to see those kinds of connections. And I think particularly the sort of, as you would put it, the progressive wing now of, of foreign policy people um, have done that. I, I do think this is one of those things where, you know, I'm not a progressive in that sense. I'm much more of a neoliberal. And I want to see the neoliberal version of that kind of argument being made. Um, and so I'm so
0: that's t- you because I think that's where Buttigieg is that Buttigieg is actually sort of trying to sneak the yeah. energy from the progressive side yeah. into an argument that he's the inheritor of the neoliberal side and I actually to me that was the most interesting thing about his speech rather than any of the content was that oh, I would, that's the I, sweet spot he's trying to land on
1: yeah we're completely uh we're we're completely in sync on that um the thing where i would push you back on and you noted that i was the outlier on this when, in your lawfare thing is that i am let me put it this way. The, the way I would put it is that I think I am more optimistic about the sources of American power, but I am more pessimistic about the structures, about the U.S. structures to exercise that power. Um, and so that's why it's not that I was missing something. It's that I think we have a fundamental disagreement about the the, the nature of power going forward, which is I think the biggest problem, the, the pro, biggest problems facing the United States are not revisionism from without, but rather revisionism from within. Um, and so it, it's the, the question of how do you make sure that this doesn't happen again um, in a post-Trump world? And how do you make sure that the institutions of, you know, uh, of American foreign policy and indeed of, of American government more generally, you know, still enable the kind of credible commitment we want to see uh, going forward, but also, you know, are, are in accordance with American values when it comes to American power. I guess yeah. This is where I'm probably—I don't know if "optimistic" is the is the the right word—but my read on this is that if anything, the surprising thing to me is that even within the Trump years, has been the robustness of American power, not its weakness. You know, particularly on let's say, you know, we could talk about Henry Farrell and Abe Newman's notion of weaponizing economic interdependence. It is disconcerting the degree to which the Trump administration is, has succeeded in that. I am worried about the long term effects of that. Um, potentially eroding U.S. power, but at least in the short term, that is not a problem that I have seen. Um, and similarly, on even on the the, the security front, uh, you know, I, I'm not terribly worried about uh, you know the erosion of, of uh, U.S. military strength. I would ag- where I would agree with you is that the challenges have proliferated, um, and so as a result, there it might be the case that that you know when I say restoring American leadership, I don't know if the U.S. can God knows, I don't think it would be possible for the U.S. to revert to everything the way it was back in August of two thousand and one, and and that would be a phenomenally expensive thing to do. But I guess I'm less, I my I guess my hunch is, is that if you actually had a President Klobuchar or a President Gillibrand, you know, you know, making the sort of case that let's say, uh, you know, a, a Obama would have been making, that actually there still remains a sufficient amount of attraction to the American president, as a leader, that there will at least be the possibility of exercising that leadership going forward?
0: I mean, I think there's a possibility of exercising something by, um, I mean, if you imagine a, a President Inslee heading out and saying, not only are we going to resign Paris, but we're going to do this, this, and this on the, the global aspects of climate change. Um so um, but I guess where where I want to push, push where where I really want to see, I think there's there's a room for a lot more neo neoliberal creative thinking than has yet happened. Right. If the mm-hmm. core challenges to American democracy and American power are internal, then the core responses have to come from, frankly, not sort of listening tours around the heartland, which I've been participating in since. The '90s, when a a new Secretary of State decided that she needed to go out and make sure Americans felt that there was nothing foreign about our foreign policy, Um, it's not telling people something; it's um, actually having people see results and outcomes in their lives. Which means that if that's the case, then the kind of battleground for for the American role in the world is how do we make the global economy. Work for how do we make people feel like the global economy works for them? And as you said, Sanders and Warren have an answer to that. And I we really need, and this is where Buttigieg's speech really fell down and was a significant disappointment. We need a neoliberal answer that isn't just "let's go resign the TPP."
1: I tend to agree with you, and you know, I, I I think that a President Hickenlooper would need to, you know make that that kind of 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 case i would say two things on this the first is the one way in which neoliberal the one way in which donald trump has been god's gift to neoliberalism is that he's demonstrated the absolute awful nature of the alternative um, you know or at least his version of the alternative which is by constantly threatening mexico or china or you know engaging in these various trade wars and tariff wars um, we are seeing visibly the costs of ex of doing those kinds of things in terms of American farmers, in terms of the drying up of foreign direct investment, in terms of frankly the waning of, of domestic investment due to, you know, geopolitical uncertainty, and so um, th- this is in some ways the the be- the best argument. F- th- I think in some ways the best neoliberal argument is to point out: look, we're now seeing what the counterfactual looks like. Um, it's not nearly as good as as you know as claimed. Uh, you know, so in some ways we need to, and, and you nonetheless need to make those connections even tighter. The second thing I would say, and in terms of, I, I think there's a there's a dichotomy in terms of this conversation between, you know, we need to make the case, you know, at the elite level, foreign policy is just an elite conversation. We don't need to pay any attention to the heartland versus like going on listening tours to the heartland. In some ways, the neoliberal argument, or frankly the progressive argument, any of these arguments. What I want to see is almost at the mezzo level, which is I want an American president to be able to make the case for foreign policy better than Justin Trudeau has made the case for neoliberal American foreign yeah. policy. Um, <laughs> I, 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 that's seriously the bar. Because you, one of the things that I was fascinated by when you know beginning in 2017 is that you saw the Trudeau government really taking you know I know this is a cliche, but like a whole of government approach to making the case for why Canada and why NAFTA is good, not just to Washington, not just to Republicans and Democrats there, but to governors and not just to governors, but to state legislatures. And in some ways, that's the end and to civic groups and so on and so forth. And, you know, both on NAFTA and also on the Paris Climate Change Accords. And, you know, what's striking to me is that it would be nice if our own <laughs> leaders were as good at doing that as I think Trudeau has been.
0: Well, this um, I think we can just have time to swing in some love to President Steve Bullock and um, President uh, Michael Bennett um, and say that one of the things that is actually sort of if you can't find your optimism from anywhere else, this is one of the most fun moments to be studying possibilities and, and strategies for American foreign policy, because There isn't a candidate or an ideological school or an ideological tendency or a political party that has a case that it's really confident in. So, you know, as I as I wrote this insane 14 piece review essay, there are all kinds of arguments where the breaking lines are not exactly where you think they should be. And this right. is it's just an incredible moment for creativity and for sort of new eyes looking or new ways of looking at at familiar facts. So, you know, to to close us out with a little bit of optimism I'm, and to congratulate ourselves on how many presidential candidates we've managed to name. I was just say,
1: President Gabbard would agree. <laughs>
0: no, 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 no. That we're editing out. I'm sorry. Okay. That's where I get off the bus. Um, I, you can't be, you can't be that prejudiced against entire groups of people. Sorry. No. Um, um, we're probably
1: not editing it out, but I'm just saying, um, but, but there is, hold on. I'm trying to think, did we miss anyone? Yes, we did miss someone. I know we must've missed people. All right, go ahead.
0: Yeah. But, but I do, I just do want to say that, um, this is a great moment to be following this field. Um, and, um, you know, so big poppy is going to recover. Um, The field is incredibly lively and creative. And I also think it's worth noting how many candidates we haven't just name checked, but have been able to name check things they've said about foreign policy. So, you know, in some ways, this is a fascinating and
1: wonderful time to be alive and do what we do. I will. All right. I will close with an equally optimistic thing. And this is actually focused specifically on Elizabeth Warren, who is not pretty far from my favorite Democratic candidate. But but she is doing one thing. There is one way in which I have liked this sort of arc of the Democratic uh, presidential race to date, which is to say that, you know, Warren, when she announced, you know, then seemed to be sliding in the polls. And a lot of people focused on on the less savory aspects of, of uh, the sort of controversy over Native American status and so on and so forth. And Warren responded by, you know, essentially releasing plan after plan after plan to the point where it became a sort of cliche of I have a plan for that Um and what is striking is that, you know, she is now by some polls, you know, sort of number two, a sort of strong number two in in many of the key states and even potentially nationally. Um, and in some ways, if this inspires other candidates to actually say, oh, it turns out that churning out policy documents would be good for getting attention and generating momentum, you know, the wonk in me and I'm sure the wonk in you uh, appreciates that. And, I, you know, if, if there's a Race to the top in terms of trying to develop cogent uh, uh, policies, obviously not perfectly detailed because it's a campaign, but still the idea that the policy matters still to presidential campaign, you know, that would turn back the clock and I would find that unbelievably refreshing.
0: So you've inspired me um to finish with a, a little tidbit for our for our devoted viewers. So dear viewers, a thing in Mayor Pete's foreign policy speech which has not gotten nearly enough notice is his way of embracing the two-state solution for Israel-Palestine while criticizing the Netanyahu government and Netanyahu by name, in a way that um, is rather unprecedented in American politics. And if that is the new, if that is the new standard, the new middle of the road, or the new right bar, um, number one, that's very interesting on its own. Number two, it got praise from none less than Jennifer Rubin. The right of center Washington Post columnist. So I'm just um, that's my little tidbit to you. Go go read that and ponder how the world is changing. Um, until until Dan and I see you again.
1: Otherwise, everyone uh, have a good summer. Hopefully, we will revisit this conversation maybe after the debates.
0: The debates never. There is no after the debates. After the debate, after the debates As were cryogenically frozen and our our heads are are put away next to who's that baseball player whose head was frozen.
1: Oh, God. Uh, Wait, Ted Williams, wasn't it? Yes,
0: yes. Uh, After the debates, it's just you and me and Ted Williams' heads. (laughs) Nothing else is left.
1: Finally, the last season of Futurama comes into being.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye, Dan.
1: Bye. Before you go, a quick message from the suits of Blogging Heads TV. Blogging Heads will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy blogging as programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.